When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To this day, people still make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. I mean, it was particularly a difficult name because I was growing up in a time and a place where it was just not tolerated to be so different and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how our sense of identity really gets mixed up in names that other people give to us. I'm Beth Nguyen, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Beth Nguyen. Beth is an author, and before you listen to this episode, you gotta go read an article that she wrote in The New Yorker, America Ruined My Name For Me. That's actually how we found Beth, and turns out, though... She is an award-winning author who's written a number of books. Her memoir, Stealing Buddha's Dinner. She's written novels like Short Girls and Pioneer Girl. She's an award-winning author. She's a professor. She has essays published all over the place, like The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times. And she lives in Wisconsin. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Of all places. Hey, Madison, Wisconsin is one of the coolest cities in America. I stand behind that. So, I'll take your word for it. I liked I liked Beth. I liked Beth. So therefore, in my mind, Madison, Wisconsin is is a very, very cool place. She made it cool in my head. <laughs> yeah. And Beth is Vietnamese American. She came over as a baby, child of refugees. And her childhood in the 80s in the Midwest in Michigan, it wasn't easy. And, you know, we had a conversation about a lot of things, mostly her hate of celery. But no... <laughs> identity and names. And and Sharon, I mean, my name's hard to pronounce. My name got made fun of a lot. Yours is not. I'm jealous. (laughs) Like, I mean, did you identify with some of what she was saying, being a normal named Asian? I could empathize with it, but it was interesting to hear how much you both had in common, being people that have very non-American names. And even something is... Uh, And to be clear, as you'll read in the New Yorker article, Beth was not her given name. She made the decision to change it recently. Right. And that's what the article's about. Right. Her given name was Bic, which is a very beautiful Vietnamese name that means jade. But if you look at how it's spelled, B-I-C-H, that caused 
frankly, a lot of shit trauma. In her life. Yeah. I mean, really, it caused a lot of trauma for her growing up, which she talks about in the article, and we touched on a little bit in our conversation. And I think what was interesting was we even talked about how Beth and Bick present themselves differently. So there was a moment yeah. when we talked about in third person, <laughs> almost yeah, in third person as if she was a character, but it as someone who did grow up with an Americanized name, but also someone who is professionally very involved in branding. I can see how your name is a complete, it's a complete reflection of your own identity because it's how other people respond to you. Right. So seeing the name Beth versus seeing the name Bick written out would create a just a completely different dynamic of the person that's speaking with you or their expectations of how they think you might respond. And so hearing her her side of the story and what made her decide to change her name to an Americanized version, especially later on in life, was quite fascinating. Yeah. So let's jump right in. We hope you like meeting our new friend, Beth. Beth, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. So Beth, you're kind of infamous. I've read some of the fire you've been putting out there. I got to ask the question, where are you from? (laughs) Where am I from? (laughs) A really favorite question. Yeah. How do you answer that? What's the first way you answer it? I answer that question, where are you from, completely differently depending on who is asking me that question. Interesting. So if it is a person that I perceive to be somewhat hostile, you know, like slightly passive aggressive white person, I will say, I'm from Michigan because that's where I grew up. And then I will refuse to give them the answer that they are looking for. However, if it's an Asian person, for example, who is asking me that, I'll tell them my whole story, which is I was born in Saigon, and that's technically where I'm from. Although my family left Saigon as refugees in 1975 when I was a baby, and then I did grow up in Michigan. Now, what if they're from Ohio? What do you say then? <laughs> oh, then we just talked about Michigan versus Ohio State. <laughs> so you were a baby then when you yeah. came over. And what brought them to Michigan? So when we left as refugees, we were just very lucky. My dad and my uncles were in the army and the navy, but they weren't high ranking or anything like that. We got out by sheer luck on April 29th, which was the day before the fall of Saigon and the end of that war. And we ended up in refugee camps in Guam and the Philippines. And then we were flown to the United States and were in a refugee camp in Arkansas. And from there, we were kind of given a couple of choices about where to be resettled. And we didn't really know anything about the United States or living in the United States. And my grandmother chose Michigan. She chose Michigan over California and Wyoming. So interesting. Do you know why? Yeah. What's grandma's rationale? We asked her that later in life. I was like, grandmother, Noy, we called her. What were you thinking? (laughs) Why didn't you choose California, basically? And she said that it was because when she was in Vietnam, she knew people whose children had gone to school at the University of Michigan. So she associated that state with education. And that's why she chose it. Wow. So when you get to Michigan or when your family gets to Michigan, 
were there, I mean, when refugees resettled, were they given five options or you just got to pick wherever you wanted? And I guess where I'm going with this is, were there other Vietnamese refugee families in the part of Michigan where you wound up growing up? Well, basically, no. (laughs) 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 But there are a lot now because we were the first wave. And the reason why we were settled in Michigan, or this particular part of Michigan, which is West Michigan, which is kind of the long shadow of Betsy DeVos and her family, very conservative part of Michigan. We were resettled there because of very active churches financially sponsoring refugees. At that time in America, there was not huge widespread support for the resettlement of refugees. There, there really has never been. I was about to say, what's changed? <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that has not changed. But there were some churches that really believed in their mission, and they brought us and some other Vietnamese families to the area and kind of set us up with a place to live and then helped people find jobs. And then we were kind of on our own. So it was really difficult. I mean, I was a baby, so I wasn't really aware of it until I got a little bit older. But my earliest memories are very much infused with a sense of struggle and a sense of uncertainty. Are there any stories? Is there like a specific story you can recall that kind of not exacerbates, but illustrates like that, what you saw the struggle that your parents and your family was going through? Well, this is not a story that I experienced, but it's a story that my dad and my uncles tell about how little they knew about life in America in a very cold climate coming from Saigon. (laughs) Right. Winter. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, winter so, in Michigan. Yeah, and it was the winter after they had saved up money and bought a used car because you really Michigan you really need to have a car to get to your job. So they had a car, but what they didn't understand was ice on the windshield, mm. and they didn't know how to what, what to do with it. There's an ice storm. There's snow. What do you? How do you get ice off a windshield when it's freezing outside? They just didn't know. And in a pre-Google world, what do you do? You just kind of trial and error. So you know what they did? They boiled water and threw it on the windshield. Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Bad choice. Yeah, which resulted in more ice on the windshield. <laughs> That's great. Were a lot of your early years in the community then centered around church because church was what had brought you over? No, actually, because we're Buddhist. <laughs> and so I think they really wanted us to be to Christian. Convert. Yeah, And I grew up with all of my neighbors who were white telling me, consistently telling me that I would go to hell, that I was going to rot in hell, that we were all going to rot in hell if we didn't convert and get baptized and all of that. But we were Buddhist, and so we kind of just didn't care and never <laughs> believed any of that talk. I mean, my friends would literally come over to my house and be like, you know, I'm really worried about your soul. And I'd be like, okay, that's fine. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you that. You want to go okay. ride bikes? <laughs> <laughs> we just were completely unfazed by that mostly. And my grandmother was, she helped establish one of the first Buddhist temples in that town. And that was our identity was being Buddhist and being decidedly not Christian, which further set us apart from everyone else because we did live in a mostly white neighborhood. Sure. Were there moments when you felt like you had to do something to fit in? Or did that mindset of 
we are Buddhists, we are different, we are proudly unique, stay with you. Oh, no, I spent my entire childhood trying to fit in. Yeah, yeah. And even though I felt a lot of defiance about religion, I just didn't like kids my age telling me that they knew what was going to happen to my soul. (laughs) At the same time, I felt incredibly aware of how different I was. This is the 1980s. This is a time when people fully believed in assimilation and fully believed in concepts like the melting pot, which I actually still hear people say, which I find really disturbing. And that it was very hard not to internalize, impossible not to internalize a lot of those messages of how to be. And so, yeah, I spent most of my childhood watching television and watching white people and trying to figure out what, how do they live and how am I supposed to live and how are we supposed to be in the world? And so I very much a lot of code switching, a lot of behavior at home being very different from behavior out in the world. I mean, I, there's obviously sounds a little umbrage with the term melting pot. Can, can we, I want to unpack that. I know what's wrong with it, but what's wrong with the melting pot? An American might say, that's what this country is about. What's the issue here? Well, I mean, if you think about fondue or things that melt in a pot, <laughs> it's an amalgamation that requires loss of identity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in Michigan, Henry Ford was a big supporter of this melting pot idea. He took it almost There were some bigger issues with Henry Ford, too, to be clear, but yes. <laughs> like in the 1910s and 1920s, he would make immigrant employees go through, I think what he called it, he called it the Ford English School. And when they graduated, he would have this melting pot ceremony where they would have a a little gigantic melting pot on a stage. And the employees would jump into it and then emerge dressed in different clothes and waving American flags. Wow. Yeah. I mean, subsuming an identity and losing something. In one of our earliest episodes, we got into a discussion with a Jamaican buddy of mine about that idea. It's like the melting pot is the issue. Why why not chili, right? Chili retains all the flavors, but you retain the pieces of you. It's a yes and, not a no but, right? But interestingly, we're all going to be eaten. (laughs) Okay, so what's the better (laughs) metaphor, Miss Author? Miss (laughs) Fondue, chili, salad. It's we're all going to be eaten or consumed by the capitalist monsters. I don't know. It sounds like doomsday. <laughs> so no food metaphors, but you've written about it now. Yeah, I actually love food metaphors. That's <laughs> Well, so okay, help me out then. Help me out then. If it's what's the better metaphor of what the American experience not necessarily is because there is assimilation was the name of the game. It's why I don't speak Hindi. It's what my parents needed in Alabama, right? But there's so much regret and loss that I feel even my dad to this day talks about. Then what is the aspirational metaphor that we need to have for immigrants and refugees coming into this country and changing it? Because we're changing it just as much as it's changing us. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we're going with food metaphors, I would have to picture a very bustling, lively food market. Well, that even changes the, you're not being eaten. We're doing the ones, we're the ones doing the eating now. Yes, exactly. We're eating and we're also creating. Yeah. Yeah. And we're selling, we're making money from all of this. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, Beth said capitalism is bad. Didn't you hear her earlier? <laughs> no, I said the capitalist monsters are bad. It's it's really oh, okay. hard to live here and not be capitalist or be influenced by capitalism in some way. The unwavering hand of the market. Beth, something the thing that brought you to our attention was your article in the New Yorker and it really hit me hard because of my own struggles with my name my entire life. You go by Beth now, but that was not the name your parents gave you. Can we talk about that a little? Yeah, definitely. So my given name, my birth name is Big, and it's spelled B-I-C-H, and the I has a an accent over it that nobody really uses, but it's pronounced Big. It's a tonal, Vietnamese is a tonal language, but people would... We could call me Bic, for instance, and that's what people would do. But the spelling of it is a bit of a challenge. Would make people laugh in an immature sort of way. I mean, more than laugh. I mean, to to this day, people still (laughs) make the very same jokes that I heard when I was five years old. They still make them today on Twitter. Adults. Do you know what I mean? So that progression of humor has not really changed too much. Uh, it was a difficult name. It was particularly a difficult name in. But it has such a beautiful meaning. It has such a beautiful meaning too. Because it means jade. Yeah, I mean, the reason why it was a difficult name was because it was a pre-progressive America, in a way, and I was growing up in a time and a place where that was just not. It was just not tolerated to be so different, and then to insist on being so different. At the same time, I was getting so many mixed messages. People would make fun of my name and then tell me in the next moment, but you should keep your name forever. It's a great name. And I would think, you're actually just lying to me right now because you don't want that name, but you think that I should keep this name because somebody else gave it to me. And it made me think about how names and naming, those they're so fraught. Those concepts are so fraught and our sense of identity really gets mixed up in names that other people give to us. And the idea of of taking control over that is a little bit scary. And it's also kind of defiant. So whenever over the years of my life, when I would maybe bring up to some friends or acquaintances that I was thinking of changing my name, people would get so angry. I mean, they would actually get angry with me. I had friends in, in the sense of how dare you give up your hair. Exactly. How dare you? I literally had friends say things like Asian friends or American friends. They were white friends. <laughs> I had white friends named Sally and Mary. Yeah, with like really <laughs> beautiful names who very easy names. Easy is the better word. Yeah. Easy. To me they were beautiful because they were easy. I mean that to me that was the same thing. An easy name was a beautiful name. I didn't see any difference between those because it just meant that you were safe from that particular kind of ridicule. Uh, Yeah, but they would say to me, you're going to break my heart if you change your name or I will never call you by some other name or you're just going to be betraying your whole family and your heritage. And it was very embarrassing and sort of shameful to hear these. And then uh, it would take me a while to realize, wait a minute, why is some white person lecturing me about how I should feel about my family or my cultural heritage. I struggled with my name my entire life. Somehow, my parents decided to give my elder sister an American-sounding name, and they gave me a weird Indian-sounding name that got mispronounced and butchered to this day. I literally have to make the joke about rum and coke 
to get people to understand how to say my name. My wife and I, we have a daughter. By the time this episode airs, we might have another child too, but we chose to give a Western name for our child, even though my wife is Chinese American and I'm Indian American, because it's that. That's literally the conscious choice that we're making. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because beauty is simplicity is I don't want my kid to have to deal with the shit I had to with my name. And my Mm -hmm. dad says, oh, your name is beautiful. It's like, yeah, but your name's easy. It's Raj. Come on, man. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I don't mind a quote unquote name that has ethnic and cultural heritage to it. But you have to let it live and breathe in the culture the kid's going to be in, man. Did you have siblings with different names, Beth? My siblings had easier Vietnamese names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there are some easy, I mean, they, my parents, if they had named me Lynn, which yeah, is a, that's a, true. a Vietnamese name, yeah. I would not have gone through this particular crisis. I would have chosen a different crisis. But my, yeah, my kids, <laughs> my, my kids have very straightforward, easy names. Is your husband Vietnamese or is he American? Yeah, my husband and my partner is white. And our kids do have very simple, straightforward names, which I wanted on purpose because I know from personal experience how much easier life is when your name is easy. And the other thing that, that was not in the New Yorker article was about how my decision to start going by Beth, which was many years in the making, that was partly because I had kids. And I realized, oh, at some point, kids have to talk about their parents and say their parents' names and things like that. And well, I just- we, Don't we know. live in a more woke- I mean, 1980s Michigan or Alabama, are kids crueler now or are they more woke and understanding with an ethnic name, I guess? I think they are more understanding, but they're not that understanding. Is it also because your name is close to another and, word? And, and you know what? They don't necessarily have the most understanding parents and teachers. Uh, we, we just don't. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a hard thing to yeah. gauge. I mean, when, when you look at how a school curriculum is set up and you realize that things aren't that different from the way they were when I was in school, like why are students in high school reading so many of the same books that I read? It's bizarre. That should not be. It's weird. It's shouldn't be that static. So no, I don't actually trust <laughs> I don't trust any idea of social progress exactly when it comes to like a school playground or what have yeah. you. Yeah, playground and, rules, yeah. playground rules haven't changed, maturity. Exactly. It's funny when we were picking my daughter's name, there's a little bit of the okay, let's put it through the how can we make fun of it filter. Literally, you kind of have to do that because playground rules will always exist. Yeah. And I mean One of the cool things is that I've heard from a lot of people who have really interesting names. I don't think of names in terms of good or bad. I'm fascinated with names because I have an interesting name. So I've heard from a lot of people with interesting names, and they all have, all these, everyone has an emotional journey with their names, basically. Yeah. How did your parents feel about you changing your name? Never mind your friends, your woke white friends, your, your Vietnamese parents who gave you your name. Oh, my parents were completely against it. That's why I didn't change my name when I was a kid, because they thought you wanted it was, to back then. You wanted to. I did. I wanted to, and they got really mad about it, and they took it as a sign of disrespect. And then I felt so bad about that that I never brought it up again. And then I thought, well, this is just my lot in life. I just need to deal with it, and I did for a really long time. But the relief 
of deciding one day, I'm just going to go buy something else was a shock to me <laughs> to realize like, how much a person can carry around. And then if you just let it go one day, what does that, what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit more about that moment. You do write about it in the article, but you just mentioned it was, it was a long time coming. You had thought about it, especially after you had kids. What was the moment that you had just felt like it was the right time? Yeah, I've been trying to write, I had been trying to write that essay for eight years. And it, it actually started with that moment, which was at a Shake Shack in New York. Yeah. And we, we, we all have our Starbucks or our Shake Shack name. Those of us with weird names. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm Roman. When I get takeout oh, or reservations, I'm Roman. Right. That's, that makes sense. Yeah. And they were always calling out people's names at Shake Shack. So what, there was just one day I said Beth. And I had never used that name before. It just kind of emerged. I usually, I usually used names from the Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Now, now I really got it. Yeah, Sophia. Sophia, yeah, she, that's a good <laughs> and, one. And Rose. I, I think Blanche and Dorothy are a little harder to pull off, right? But I think right. Rose and Sophia are very. They're pretty basic. Yeah, so I would use those names a lot. But then one day I just said Beth, and I was at the Shake Shack, and when I said it, I just felt like a different person. And of course, the woman who was taking my order, it's not like she was going to call me out. <laughs> she was like, okay, you're Beth. She didn't care. And there was something about that transaction that made me realize, oh, actually nobody cares, <laughs> or nobody has to care. And with a, with a name that is unremarkable, like Beth, people can... Write it down, not ask me a further question. There's no follow-up. It's done. And it was this moment of freedom is what it felt like. Yeah. It's almost like you've, you say this, I think the exact word you use are that you're finding some space being Beth. Yes. It's like having another secret identity. Right. So is Beth different from Bic? Is she different at all? Outwardly, inwardly? Yeah. Is this where I talk about myself in the third person? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I can do that. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm going to try it. I've never done that. So Beth is less self-conscious. Beth is more of an extrovert. Bic is completely shy, self-conscious, an introvert, and doesn't even know if those are the same thing as being traumatized or what. Those are all kind of combined for Bic. But Beth is a little bit more, what have you? She's like, okay, I'm just going to walk through the world in a slightly more confident way. Not really confident, but just slightly more. And that feels to Beth like a great stride, a sense of, of having a great forward stride in life. Is Beth tied to culture in the same way that Bic is? Beth is, it's not like I really like the name. And it's also usually a nickname for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, right. Which mm -hmm. I don't feel like an Elizabeth at all. Yeah, she's a little too proper for me. I will support Elizabeth Bennett, but I'm definitely not in Elizabeth Bennett's league. I mean, it's very notable that Elizabeth Bennett, her nickname was Lizzie. That makes sense for her. I'm not a Lizzie. I feel like I'm way quieter. <laughs> And so Beth is sort of mousier, actually. You know, think of Beth from 
Little Women. It's a, it's a, just a slightly a mousier name, and that suits me because I would rather be a little bit under the radar, but not in the shadows the way I always felt that I was when I was big. So interesting. There's so much on the show, and just in my life, I think about Asian identity and how I hate the catch-all term of we're Asian, right? India is very different from Vietnam, is very different from China, is very different from Myanmar, right? And But the kind of dominant Asian cultures in my life are Chinese culture, that of my wife and my podcast co-host is another person, right? And even on the world stage, and then obviously India. But I contrast those two, and I sometimes find a lot of Southeast Asian cultures kind of threading the needle between those two, personality-wise, and not to diminish them, but and it comes to naming specifically, right? So Chinese Americans literally have a dual identity. My wife, and Sharon, I'm guessing you, you have your, almost like your anglicized name, but you have a Chinese name as well, right? Mm -hmm. And- But Indian people, and I don't know if it's because English is such a dominant part of our culture because of colonization, et cetera, we use Indian names. There's no American. I mean, we have the Starbucks name, the Roman. Mm-hmm. My my late uncle, Baldev, went by Dave at work, if you have to, right? And I've, I've just noticed that like dichotomy. Indians own the Indian name and the weird Indianness that is the Indian name. Whereas Chinese people are like, no, we're going to have two different names. Even some of the Chinese Chinese people I've worked with in other countries they will only do business with their Western name. And I guess, have you, Beth, in in your kind of dealings with the world as an Asian American, have you observed those differences between other Asian cultures? I mean, obviously, specifically with Vietnamese Americans, do they do the Starbucks thing? Do they want to own their name? What have you seen about kind of the adoption of names within the the subcultures of Asian America? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I've noticed that, that what you called the ownership of Indian names, I've always admired that and sort of been in awe of it. I hate because- it. Let's be clear. It made my life hell. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Sundar Pachai, Indra Nuhi, etc. Yeah, I have always thought it was wonderfully real and slightly defiant at the same time. And I've I actually wondered, like, why? what's wrong with... The rest of us, why can't we do that? No, but more? Vietnamese people, no, hang on one second. Really, the thing I love, I don't know why my wife and I have this massive predilection for Vietnamese culture from our time traveling there, literally on vacation in Virginia. We've spent all of our time at a Vietnamese shopping center getting our food, but wonderfully defiant. That's part of Vietnamese culture, in my opinion. You guys have that, don't you? And then doesn't that translate to name? I mean, you would think. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't know. I think the Vietnamese experience in America is also just so heavily defined by the war. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And when we are defined by the war, what I mean is that we are defined by how Americans, and specifically white Americans, how they think about the war and therefore how they think about Vietnamese people. How do they think about the war? That Vietnamese people are to blame. It was. A regular part of my growing up, and actually a regular part of my adulthood too, that white people would say things to me about, oh, people in my family went to war for your people. And I would always have to say, well, guess what? So did my people. (laughs) We were in that war too. 
And we were actually fighting on the same side. And a lot of people didn't actually know that, which is a real lapse in what history has taught here, maybe. A lot of people did not know why we were even in the United States. I was like, what do you think? We, we actually are, were on the losing side. That's why we're here. And they would be like, oh, and not really quite even understand that in many ways, because a lot of times we were just viewed as the enemy as a foreign enemy that caused all these Versus problems. in reality, it was a civil war, right? Yeah, and also just we were a very uncomfortable reminder of a huge amount of loss. And that perspective never takes into account the amount of loss that Vietnamese people went through. The same thing. It's so fr- I feel like history repeats itself in this country because with the Middle East, mm-hmm. Afghanis and Iraqis, right? And yeah, there's and with the refugee crisis, people who are helping our soldiers over there, whether or not you agree with the war, my point is, but we're not letting those people come over now, right? That have literally, and it's just like history is repeating itself. And then anti-Arab hate. It's just, sorry, history is a very frustrating thing. It's just like we forgot the lessons of one and just go straight into the next. Well, I do think that's partly because Americans for so long have really just wanted to have such a narrow definition of what America is. I hear or, it's a melting pot. That's what I what it should mean. Yeah, that's a melting pot. You come here and you disappear into the fondue. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, one of the sad truths about being here as a refugee or as an immigrant is that we are forced, asked, required all the time to think about the white American perspective. We are as, asked as if to that's live the default, that. right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's a little bit soul crushing because we are told that that perspective matters way more than our own. And then it's just we spend the rest of our lives trying to reckon with that, trying to fight against it, trying to reclaim something that is actually ours. How do your children identify themselves? Do they say? I'm Vietnamese. I'm American. And the reason I ask is because my daughter's starting to ask, what am I? And she's a little younger than your sons. Oh, yeah. My kids identify as Asian. They identify as Vietnamese. And we talk about things all the time having to do with identity and having to do with colonization and imperialism, things that I didn't know until I got to college. I figure there's no time to waste. They need to know this now. It's just, it's never too early to begin discussions about race and racism. You mentioned your husband's American. Is he white American or is he Vietnamese? Yeah, he's white. He's a white guy. Okay. So your kids are mixed race like ours are. I say ours yeah. like Roman and I have kids together. Yeah. We don't. <laughs> God, no. No, but, but there's this interesting thing, a term I've learned on this podcast, which again, I'm I'm a pretty stupid guy, but this idea of passing, right? Are you white passing? Are you black passing, et cetera? But half Asian kids, oh, my daughter's all Asian. She's just, but Sharon's kids are black passing, even though, but your kids, I would imagine, look Asian. Or to, to the white kid on the school bus, your kids are Asian. Barack Obama was a black president, even though he was half white. How does the world perceive your kids, I guess? Asian as well? That is an interesting question that I have sort of been asking myself because I'm not really sure yet. <laughs> and, and because they're young and they're still growing, 
But the weird thing is there are so many, what we call, people call mixed kids. There's so many mm-hmm. that it's- In your in your area? Yes, definitely. Yeah. And, and where we lived in California. And it was, I think it's a category of its, of its own now. Yeah, but here's where I struggle with that. I, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. All Americans are mixed. I'm sorry, your white husband is mixed. I'm guessing. Yeah. I don't, I know nothing about it. But my white neighbor is- got a Polish grandfather and a French great auntie. America, ultimately, two to three generations in, we're all mixed. It just happens to be that the mixing is now not all white mixing. Does that make yeah, like, we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're mixing some more melanin into the, into the melanin. Yeah, we're all going to be a shade of brown five generations out, aren't we? Because your sons, I think about our kids specifically. My parents wanted it's the wrong word because what they knew, what they didn't know, what they expected, what they didn't expect was I was going to marry a nice Indian girl. And I did it. It's fine because they raised me in Alabama. I didn't meet a lot of Indian girls. Right. And I dated some, but now I have a half Chinese, half Indian daughter. And I don't think I'm going to have the expectation 20 years from now that she meets a half Chinese, half Indian boy or girl. Right. <laughs> right. Like you that's never hard. Know. That's a, well no, because I made that same argument to my parents. What do you expect? It's hard enough to meet a girl that'll date a nerd like me, and she has to be <laughs> Indian and she has to be Punjabi and she has to be this cast. No, come on. That's we're in Alabama. Get out of here. When your parents they were okay with that, they were like, Yeah, do you do you? No, it took I mean, I had to make these arguments, right? And I brought home some Indian girls. And it, it's I guess my point is it's your sons. Do you want your sons to meet? I know we all we all want to be woke and we all want to say a certain thing, but you don't necessarily need a half Vietnamese, half white partner for your sons later on in life. Sharon, you don't need a half black, no. half Chinese, never mind from Alabama or from Chinatown or from Michigan or God forbid, Ohio, right? right? right. I think that to me, that's where the melting pot actually happens. The melting pot doesn't happen in generation one or two. It happens in generation two or three when it happens when you're not looking. But I, I am curious about my own kids, if they are going to find someone who is Asian or Black or something else completely. There is a part of me that's curious to know what's going to happen. Well, here, this, your, your situation is interesting, Sharon. And Beth, I'd love to know your take. But Sharon's kids, they're Black passing, and they will be perceived in America as Black people more than Asian, I think. And so as a result, because of that identity and understanding that they will have with being Black men they might seek out other quote unquote black people who understand their experience right. because it's the black reality is harder than the Asian. It's different. I'm not saying ah, I need to be careful. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's a different I, experience. It is. Or maybe they'll come back with a Russian partner completely, completely different. I you know, know what I honestly think is that it's not my problem. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's true. It's their problem because yeah, relationships are hard. They have to deal with the next iteration of TikTok or whatever the yeah. hell it's going to yeah. be when they get older. That's not my problem. They're going to have to deal with those relationships. My job is to help them be better people so they can be good in a relationship or with other people in any kind of capacity. But whomever they end up with, I actually Power want no them. say in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do not want to be involved. <laughs> You're so wise, Beth. <laughs> I just want them to know how to talk to people in a way that is generous and thoughtful and not full of gaslighting. 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing. You don't, the one thing we want for our children is we want them to be happy. We want them to be self sufficient. And I don't want my kid to be an asshole. And I don't want her to meet an asshole or end up with an asshole. That's it. That's literally respect yourself and figure it out. I'll equip you as best I can. Yeah, that sounds, it sounds so easy. And yet, <laughs> yet there are a lot of assholes out there. I think the discrimination, where the discrimination is really going to come is around interests. And to be clear, my wife and I have very opposite interests in things, but it's like, let's pretend, I'll uh, just play it, play up the Michigan OSU thing. Beth, let's pretend your entire family are like diehard Wisconsin or Michigan fans. It would be terrible to have an Ohio fan in the family, right? Or like, if I'm a big Star right. Trek nerd, Gosh, you better not be into Star Wars. And I'm into both. I'm an equal nerd. I actually didn't know those two things were opposed. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're not friends, Beth. <laughs> Beth, you and I should hang out. I, I, was, I, thought, I, I guess I assumed references. that I have no they were almost talking about. You just discriminate against all nerds equally. Got it. Yeah, well, they both had the word star in it. So I guess I thought they were fairly similar. <laughs> meet me like on my other If you like podcast. one, you should like the other. Beth, meet me on my other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's all good. I am not a person who has strong allegiances to any kind of brand or sports team or whatever. I just don't, I'm just not that kind of person. And so therefore, if my kid wants to go to the Ohio State, I'd be like, okay, whatever, if you really want to. Right. But there's, there's nothing, there, there's not like you like Coke better than Pepsi. There's not like, a I thing don't like either. Fair, but no, there's no thing you want to die on your sword for the difference between. Yeah. Like, no. What's your- my what, goodness, what, no, what there's so many options out there. Like, but what's your passion? What is the, what's something that's, that you're not willing to compromise? I mean, I have a lot of strong opinions about food and ingredients, but the fact is there are so many options out there. If one is not there for me, there's going to be another one. If I don't have the ingredients to make a lemon cake, that's okay. I can make a chocolate cake. Do you know what I mean? It's fine. That's a great and way. So, that, that to me is like I don't know. I don't necessarily different things. Lemon cake versus chocolate cake. Now hang on, hang on, hang on. Because you, <laughs> you mentioned you drive and you don't walk. What kind of car do you drive? What brand? Oh, you're talking to me? Yeah, Beth. Oh. <laughs> Nobody ever asks me that question. I am a very sensible academic. I have a Subaru. Okay. Well, we have two Subarus. I love Subaru. I also listen to NPR, as you can yeah, oh, tell. Okay. <laughs> Boom. So here, here's where I'm going to prove you wrong, Beth. Just, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm ready. So you probably don't want a Hummer and you probably don't like Fox News. Right. There you go. So what, wait, wait, what, what, what has is, that proven? I don't know. I'm just having fun. You're, <laughs> how would you feel if your son brought home a girl that drove a Hummer and listened to Fox News? Ooh. Yeah, would that would, that? I mean, yeah. that would be, it would get complicated for sure. <laughs> I mean, it definitely would, but... It's not like relationships aren't without that kind of complication. <laughs> but that's still like, I'm going to really try to make that now my business. Do you know what I mean? Until you see the Hummer in your driveway yeah, exactly. a couple times a week. <laughs> but the other thing I really definitely know is that being a, a parent is also being very familiar with failure. Yeah. Every like day. a lot of failure. and. Hopes and dreams that have to get <laughs> radically revised. My wife and I have this theory that because we're both huge nerds on so many levels, and we're like, oh my God, our daughter's going to be cool and popular <laughs> and not into comic books. <laughs> we're so screwed. Oh no. <laughs> my parents were not the tiger parent type at all, which I think, I don't know how unusual that is, but my parents did not 
pay attention to my grades. They didn't ask to see my report card. They didn't even know when I got my grades. Wow. So everything that I did, and I did care about grades, everything I did in terms of my scholarships and all that stuff, it was not for them. I never asked for their validation. They didn't even know that I was applying to college. They had no say in it. They didn't pay for any of my college. They didn't, they were not involved at all. Never helped me with homework. They were just kind of, they were doing their own thing. What did, did they have opinions about your, your now husband? Did they have expectations of who they thought you should marry? No, they didn't. My parents are bizarrely chill about a lot of things. <laughs> I was about to say, they're, biz- they're bizarrely yeah. cool. Yeah, man. No, Very but cool. I mean, they, they, trust me, there was a lot of dysfunction and conflict when I was growing up. In the 80s and 90s, there was a plenty of conflict in our household. And then after my siblings and I all went to college and left, maybe we finally gave my parents the space they needed to calm down. And now they're chill. I've observed the same thing. And again, while there was more tiger or dragon parenting in my household, it's once my sister and I kind of could prove to them that we had our life under control, mom and dad got really chill. (laughs) Because, okay, you clearly have got this. I can give you my opinion, but you know what? You're going to do your own thing. I I literally feel like my mom or dad said that about me one time. It's like, at some point, we just figured you've got this. Wow. Again, yeah, this was like in my mid twenties. This was my mid twenties when that happened. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, never heard that. I never heard that. But then again, I was never pressured to go into dentistry or whatever. They didn't actually have any preference about what I should do. <laughs> which, which is why I became English major, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I we have a running joke about English majors in my household, and we're the best. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I would say. Here's where you are the best. The English majors that we have met on this podcast have proven to me how awesome you guys are. I'll actually say something. You know, I wanted to be an artist. And my dad was like a very small percentage of them do very, very well. And I think that's where the doctor, lawyer, engineer pressure comes from. Like, you know, if you work hard, you become an engineer, become a doctor, it's guaranteed success. And I think with English majors, you are seeing success and notoriety as are many authors and professors. But that's not it's a harder path, I think. And I think that's why the parents, the Asian parents have that pressure or that their mind or their preconceived notion of what success is. But that that was my dad's point of view on becoming an artist versus not. Mm-hmm. But it's all a hard path. But I would argue yeah. from a perception standpoint, as a parent putting on false expectations on your children's lives, you want what's easiest. I think some paths are harder than others, or they look harder than others, I should say. I guess, Beth, if you could tell your past self, that girl who was coming up in Michigan, what would you tell your past self? What advice would you give her? I'm going to focus on a moment that happened right before I started kindergarten. I did not go to preschool. I went to kindergarten. And I was one of the youngest, maybe the youngest in my kindergarten class. And I remember the morning I started kindergarten, I put on this little sort of silky red vest that I had, which I adored. And it had, it tied with little tiny white pom-poms, which I thought was the most beautiful thing ever. And I went into the bathroom. We had this ranch house and we had this one bathroom. And to see myself full length in the mirror, I had to stand on the edge of the bathtub. So I went to the bathroom, I stood on the bathtub and I looked at myself in the mirror and I tied the little fluffy pom-poms of this you know, silky red vest. And I said to myself, 
you're going to school. You are, you're on your own now. You have to take care of yourself. Nobody is going to take care of you. You are on your own. And that is exactly what I felt. That was to me, this is what school is. This is what life is. And I was just not quite five years old telling myself that I was alone. No one was going to take care of me out there in that harsh world of school and go do this. Kind of like giving myself a pep talk. And that's what I did. And I had my family, my grandmother who lived with us, always taking care of us. I had a lot of love and safety at home for the most part. But I knew that as soon as I left the safety of my grandmother's kitchen and everything that she offered to us, that I was alone out there in this American, white, English-speaking world, and no one was going to help me find my way. And so I would look back (laughs) and tell her, you know what? You're right. Actually, that is kind of true. But there are a lot of other people out there feeling the exact same thing, and you need to find them. You need to look for them. That's really beautiful. Beth, we've covered so much ground, and I think that you seem like you're ready for speed round. Remen, what do you think? <laughs> She's ready for speed round? Speed round. <laughs> no one's ever ready for speed round. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have faith in you though, Beth. I think you can do this. What is one thing about you that no one expects? No one expects that I have gone skydiving by myself. Ooh, that's exciting. Not jumping tandem, literally just yeah, jumping that, that's out a, that, alone. That's a Lizzie thing. That's such it was a not Lizzie tandem. Thing. That's such a Lizzie Whoa, thing. That is I'm not saying I would do it thing. again. I would not do that again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Beth statement. Yeah. <laughs> the skydiving yeah. Lizzie. Exactly. <laughs> is there a book or a movie that has characters that you really relate to? <laughs> oh, so many. Okay. I'm going to start with a book from childhood called Harriet the Spy. Nice. <laughs> by Louise Fitzhugh. I, that was my favorite book throughout childhood. And I was Harriet. She's just wandering around New York, spying on people and writing it down in her <laughs> notebook. I want to I, do that. I remember that book. It was a good book. What is your favorite mom dish? What is my favorite mom dish? Yeah. So what's something that your mom made for you that's your favorite? Oh, well, my mom was not a good cook whatsoever. Oh, you can make you can make it a grandmom dish. Can I'm I make it a grandma to, dish? Yeah. Yeah. You can make a grandma dish. Yeah. What's your favorite grandma dish? She made this she was a really fantastic cook. One of the things that she made that was our comfort food was this very sort of sweet, salty shrimp curry with green onions. And I could still see exactly the way it would look in the bowl. That sounds yummy. And what would you say is your best mom dish for your own kids? Oh, that is a fine question. I make a ton of food for my kids. And besides all the cakes, something that I've been making, <laughs> a lot of cakes, a lot of... I hear, I, And I hear like if there are no lemons, you're, you're still And good. it just becomes I a just, chocolate cake chocolate, and it's yeah. all good. Yeah. I make some really elaborate cakes. I, I must, I gotta tell you. So... I'm also, I also like to make udon noodles from scratch. Wow. From scratch. Wow. Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's easier it. than it sounds. Huh. And I like to make pizza from scratch. Wow. Are those, would they you can say, always count on those. as far as your mom dish, is that the your go-to as a mom dish? If your kids were on this podcast, 
five to 10 years from now, and I ask, what's your favorite mom dish? What's the thing they would say? They might say the udon, but they probably would say salmon and couscous. Flip side of that. What is your least favorite food? Oh, okay. Celery. Plain celery. (laughs) (laughs) You know when we used to go to parties before the pandemic? Yeah. Yeah, and they're like very the often well, the, the crudite crudite platter. Yes, like, no, you know the no crudite, <laughs> the crudite with like this, the carrot sticks that have turned white, and the celery, <laughs> and the dry olives, and the freaking hummus in a plastic <laughs> container. I would see those and I'd get so mad. Yeah, and I'd be like, really? I came to a party, and I had to eat raw vegetables. That's not a party. <laughs> <laughs> Since when are raw vegetables a party? That's like a punishment. That's not a party. That's funny. That's so funny. <laughs> and yeah, I know people are starting to do parties and get togethers again, but let me tell you, that is not something I've ch- that's changed for me. Like I still, I don't care if I'm going to a party tomorrow. With we, we, we should leave past. the crudita in the before times. We need yeah, to move exactly. Forward. I don't yeah. want to encounter that raw celery. What if you put peanut butter and raisins on it? Was that would that be better or no? That's what they did in my childhood. Yeah. They called it ants on a log. Yeah, ants on a log. That does not <laughs> that does not make it more appealing to call it ants on a log. It makes it worse. <laughs> I love your rage about celery. I have to say, I don't think I'm a I don't I'm not a big fan of celery either. I just never think about it. But now that you've mentioned it, it's definitely definitely on the bottom of my list. It is a punishment to eat yes. celery. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast? Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's because I have this sequin pillow of Keanu Reeves' face. Still to this day. As one does. As one does. (laughs) You don't, Sharon? That pillow has been in the background of all of my Zoom classes for over a year. And I've just grown really, really fond of him. Keanu Day was supposed to be coming up, but they released two Keanu movies in a day. But I think that's been delayed. So, oh, so I'll just go hug my pillow. It's all right. (laughs) Beth, last question: What does being a modern minority mean to you? I think the idea of being a modern minority is really fascinating because you can't help but focus on the word modern. And modern is also a really strange word because it's a word that changes. It's a word that can be completely dependent on perspective and on how that perspective shifts. It's a relative term. Like people in the 1920s thought they were very modern. And so our, our use of the word modern changes depending on context, depending if we're talking about literature or art or design or just where we are right now. And I think that's what I like about it, is that to be a modern minority is to be somebody who is aware of changes in perspective, who is aware that we have to keep changing our perspective, that we have to keep growing and have to keep rethinking our positionality. And part of that rethinking is looking back at our history, our shared history, and figuring out what we want the future to be as a result. The only constant in the universe is change, Beth. Beth, thank you. This has just been, I've had so much fun. I, <laughs> I hope we didn't uh, put you on the spot too much. No, but- we got to a lot of interesting subjects. I'm going to be thinking about 
your names for some time. So yeah, thank you so much for having me here. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. We felt very seriously about bringing in kids during the two administrations. And the second time around, by stroke of chance, the world in between was a very different place. And as gay dads, eight years ago, our posture was often defensive. The three of us would be out and you'd be batting away the questions about where's the mom. And so out of the gate, we would try and get ahead of the critique and the commentary. And and by the way, not not mean-spirited, most. Right. Just genuinely confused. And I think in the intervening eight years, that's changed and I've changed, right? Like I'm unabashedly a proud gay dad. I strapped my son in the baby Bjorn. I have got my daughter in her backpack walking from the bus stop and my husband holding my hand. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com